by 1450, I think it must have dawned on King Henry VI that ruling England was not going to be easy. In his early years as king, he had relied heavily, though as we have seen, not exclusively, upon several of his advisers. The chief among these, William de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, was killed in the aftermath of Jack Cade's revolt in 1450. Would Henry now put his faith in another key individual, or would he decide to rule more broadly, using the skills and strengths of a wider range of his counsellors? Let's consider Henry's situation in 1450. I've said already that the English monarch in medieval times relied upon his greatest subjects for support, and managing them was thus very important to his own success. But Henry's interest in the management of his leading subjects stemmed only from a sense of duty. It was not something he enjoyed, nor did he find it easy. There were several damaging feuds brewing up between rival baronial families, notably in the north and the southwest. But Henry lacked the means and the will to settle such disputes. Underpinning all his policies was the war with France, but it was going badly. Henry knew that without some military successes, he would be hard-pressed to negotiate a peace with France which would in any way be acceptable to his English subjects. But in the shadows lurked another thorny problem. For though Henry was unchallenged as king, his marriage to young Margaret of Anjou had yet to produce the required male heir. As long as that was the case, there would be uncertainty in the kingdom about the future. After the death of his remaining uncle, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, in 1447, Henry had no other close relatives left, and the royal house of Lancaster had no obvious heir. One of his most prominent nobles, Richard Duke of York, possessed royal lineage as a descendant of Edward III. Though York did not press a claim to Henry's throne, after Gloucester's death he wanted to be acknowledged as the heir if Henry died childless. In other words, the heir presumptive. So what was Henry to do? Were there any alternatives to York? If Henry were to look to family for an alternative, then he would have to turn to the Beauforts. Henry is called a Lancastrian king because he was descended from John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, one of the numerous sons of Edward III. The Beaufort family, however, could also claim to be Lancastrian because they too were descended from John of Gaunt through a later marriage. Though they were initially born out of wedlock, the Beauforts were later legitimised in the eyes of both church and state. Henry's grandfather, Henry IV, had stated that they could not inherit the throne, but there is much doubt whether his amendment had the force of law, and what one king could suggest, another could surely dismiss. So what did the Beaufort family offer in the way of an alternative to York? The current adult male Beaufort, Edmund, Duke of Somerset, was, like Henry, descended in a direct male Lancastrian line. 
which made him an option for Henry as heir presumptive. The Beauforts had been steadfastly loyal to their cousins, whereas York's forebears had not always been so supportive. Indeed, Richard's own father had been executed for treason by Henry's father, Henry V. Perhaps then, from Henry's perspective, Edmund Beaufort would be a better choice than Richard, Duke of York. As the years passed, with no sign of a royal offspring, it seemed increasingly likely that either York or Beaufort would be king when Henry died. It was also pretty obvious that York and Somerset would see each other as rivals for the king's favour, and that around these two men dangerous political factions would form. Understanding how this deep-seated and poisonous rivalry worsened is the key to making any sense of what takes place in the early stages of the Wars of the Roses. The rivalry began long before 1450 in France, where York had served since the mid-1430s. In 1440, York was given a five-year appointment as the King's Lieutenant in France and Normandy. Given the importance of the war, this was a prestigious role. In fact, it was exactly the sort of pivotal role that York believed was his due. However, in 1443, Edmund Beaufort's elder brother John was given a similar post in Gascony, but for seven years. Not only that, but he was provided with a larger army than York and a great wad of cash about £25,000 to pay his soldiers. By contrast, during his five-year stint, York would spend almost £40,000 of his own money. Though John Beaufort died in 1444, his brother Edmund rose swiftly to prominence. He was given the lieutenancy in France, which York regarded as rightfully his, and in 1448 was made Duke of Somerset. York, by contrast, was sent to rule Ireland for ten years, and thus moved far from the royal court. To York, this must have seemed like a cruel exile, and he delayed his departure until 1449. The Crown owed York a fortune. Though the Crown owed everyone, with total debts in 1449, of over £372,000. Only by agreeing to forfeit a large fraction of the total did York get agreement that the Crown would pay any of its debts to him. Yet even then he received very little, because whether a creditor was paid or not depended upon whether they had access to the King's inner circle, and York patently did not. So this brings us neatly back to where we left off in the last podcast, 1450 and the destruction of Henry's closest advisers led by Suffolk. At that moment, two of Henry's most prominent nobles, York and Somerset, were both abroad. So what was Henry to do? Well, he decided to recall Somerset from France and leave York in Ireland and that decision was to have considerable repercussions. Somerset's recall presented York with a bitter dilemma. 
Either he could continue to languish in Ireland and watch his rival grow in power at the royal court, or he could return to England. He was not permitted to return to England without the King's express permission and would clearly risk Henry's anger if he did so, and especially if he came in force. Yet could he afford to leave Somerset unchallenged? And could he afford to come alone? Without some muscle behind him, he would surely leave himself vulnerable to Somerset. He blamed the problems of Henry's government, failure in war, mounting debts and charges of corruption on the likes of Suffolk and Somerset. So he did not wait long, and no doubt spurred on by the July revolt of Jack Cade, he decided that his moment had come, and in September 1450 he arrived back in England with a growing force of men-at-arms. York regarded Somerset as a traitor and an incompetent who belonged in the Tower, but since Somerset had the confidence of both the King and an increasingly influential Queen, there was little chance of that happening. During the winter of 1450-51, to 51, there was a tense impasse between York and Somerset and their various groups of supporters. York had some popular support, notably in the House of Commons, but little support amongst members of the Royal Council. So, whilst Parliament was in session, York could exert some pressure on Henry, as in December 1450, when Parliament impeached Somerset and he was sent to the Tower. But only a few short hours later, Somerset was released by order of the Queen. Once Parliament was dissolved, a power completely in the King's hands, York's influence evaporated. Thus, Somerset remained in power and York had done nothing to advance his cause. York now languished in the political wilderness with his influence at an all-time low, and perhaps this persuaded him that if he was going to remove Somerset from power, he would have to resort to force. Yet in 1451, with depleted resources and few allies, even that desperate course of action must have seemed a very long way off. <laughs> <laughs>